Chapter Seven of The Worm Ouroboros. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jason Mills. The Worm Ouroboros by E. R. Edison. Chapter Seven. Guests of the King in Carsey. Of the two banquet halls that were in Carsey, the old and the new, and of the entertainment given by King Garais the Twelfth, in the one hall to Lord Juss and Lord Brandock de Haar, and in the other to the Prince Lafayeries, and of their leave-taking when the banquet was done. The morrow of that battle dawned fair on Carsey. Folk lay long abed after their toil, and until the sun was high naught stirred before the walls. But towards noon came forth a band sent by King Garais to bring in the spoil, and they took up the bodies of the slain, and laid them in hoe on the right bank of the river Druima, half a mile below Carsey witches, demons, and goblins in one grave together, and raised up a great hoe over them. Now was the sun's heat strong, but the shadow of the great keep rested still on the terrace without the western wall of the palace. Cool and redolent of ease and soft repose was that terrace, paved with flagstones of red jasper, with spleenwort, asafoetida, livid toadstools, dragon's teeth, and bitter moonseed growing in the joints. On the outer edge of the terrace, were bushes of arbor vitae planted in a row, squat and round like sleeping dormice, with clumps of chalk pardaconite in the interspaces. Many hundred feet in length was the terrace from north to south, and at either end a flight of black marble steps led down to the level of the inner ward and its embattled wall. Benches of green jasper, massively built and laden with velvet cushions of many colours, stood against the palace wall facing to the west, and on the bench nearest the iron tower a lady sat at ease eating cream wafers and a quince tart, served by her waiting-women in dishes of pale gold for her morning meal. Tall was that lady, and slender, and beauty dwelt in her as the sunshine dwells in the red floor and grey-green trunks of a beech-wood in early spring. Her tawny hair was gathered in deep folds upon her head, and made fast by great silver pins, their heads set with anachite diamonds. Her gown was of cloth of silver, with a knotted cordwork of black silk embroidery, everywhere decked with little moonstones, and over it she wore a mantle of figured satin, the colour of the wood-pigeon's wing, tinselled and overcast with silver threads. White-skinned she was, and graceful as an antelope. Her eyes were green, with yellow fiery gleams. Daintily she ate the tart and wafers, sipping at whiles from a cup of amber, artificially carved, white wine cool from the cellars below Carsey, and a maiden sitting at her feet played on a seven-stringed lute, singing very sweetly this song. Ask me no more where Jove bestows, when June is past the fading rose, for in your beauty's orient deep these flowers as in their causes sleep. Ask me no more whither do stray the golden atoms of the day, for in pure love heaven did prepare those powders to enrich your hair. Ask me no more whither doth haste the nightingale when May is past, for in your sweet dividing throat she winters and keeps warm her note. Ask me no more where those stars light that downwards fall in dead of night, for in your eyes they sit and there fixed become as in their sphere. Ask me no more if east or west the phoenix builds her spicy nest, for unto you at last she flies, and in your fragrant bosom dies. No more, said the lady, thy voice is cracked this morning. Is none abroad yet thou canst find to tell me of last night's doings? Or are all gone my lord's gate, that I left sleeping still as though all the poppies of all earth's gardens breathed drowsiness about his head? One cometh, madam, said the damsel, 
the lady said, the Lord grow. He may resolve me. Though were he in the stour last night, that were a wonder indeed. Therewith came Gro along the terrace from the north, clad in a mantle of dun-coloured velvet, with a collar of raised work of gold upon silver pearl, and his long black curly beard was perfumed with orange-flower water and angelica. When they had greeted one another, and the lady had bidden her women stand apart, she said, My lord, I thirst for tidings. Recount to me all that befell since sundown, for I slept soundly till the streaks of morning showed through my chamber windows, and then I awoke from a flying dream of senates sounding to the onset, and torches in the night, and war's alarums. And there were torches indeed in my chamber, lighting my lord to bed, that answered me no word, but straightway fell asleep as in utter weariness. Some slight scratches he hath, but else unhurt. I would not wake him, for balm is in slumber. Also is he ill to do with, if one wake him so. But the tattle and wild surmise of the servants bloweth as ever to all points of wonder, as that a great armament of demon-land is disembarked at Tenemos, and all routed last night by my lord, and by Corinius, and Goldriblusco slain in single combat with the king. Or that just hath set a charm on Laxus, and all our fleet making them sail like parricides against this land, just and the other demons leading them. And all slain save Laxus and Goldriblusco, but these brought bound into Carsey, stark mad and frothing at the lips, and Corinius dead of his wounds after slaying of Brandoc de Har. Or, foolishly, and her green eyes light and dangerously, that it was my brother risen in revolt to wrest Pixieland from the overlordship of Garais, and joined with Gaslock to that end, and their army overthrown and both ten prisoner. Grohl laughed and said, Surely, O oh my lady Presmira, truth masketh in many a strange disguise when she rideth rumour's broomstick through king's palaces. But somewhat of herself hath she shown thee, if thou conclude that an event was brought to birth betwixt dark and sunrise to stagger the world, and that the power of witchland bloomed forth this night into unbeholden glory. Thou speakest big, my lord, said the lady. Were the demons in it? Ay, madam, he said. And triumphed on, and slain? All slain save Juss and Brandoc de Har, and they taken, said Gro. Was this my lord's doing? she asked. Greatly as I think, said Gro, though Corinius claimeth for himself, as commonly the main honour of it, Presmira said he claimeth over much. And she said, There were none in it, save demons. Gro, knowing her thought, smiled and made answer, Madam, there were witches. My lord Gro, she cried, thou dost ill to mock me. Thou art my friend. Thou knowest the prince my brother, proud and sudden to anger. Thou knowest it chafeth him to have witchland over him. Thou knowest the time is many days overpast when he should bring his yearly tribute to the king. Gro's great ox-eyes were soft as he looked upon the Lady Presmira, saying, Most assuredly am I thy friend, madam. Belike, if truth were told, thou and thy lord are all the true friends I have in Waterish Witchland, you two and the king, but who sleepeth safe in the favour of kings? Ay, madam, none of Pixieland stood in the battle yesternight, therefore let thy soul be at ease. But my task it was, standing on the battlements beside the king, to smile and smile, while Corinius and our fighting men made a bloody havoc of four or five hundred of mine own kinsfolk. Presmira caught her breath and was silent a moment. Then, Gaslark? The main force was his, it appeareth, answered Lord Grow. Corinius braggeth himself his banesman, and certain it is he felled him to earth, but I am secretly advertised he was not among the dead taken up this morning. My lord, she said, my desire for news drinks deep while thou art fasting. 
Some bring meat and wine for my lord Gro. And two damosels ran, and returned with sparkling golden wine in a beaker, and a dish of lampreys with hippocrass sauce. So Gro sat him down on the jasper bench, and while he ate and drank, rehearsed to the Lady Fresmira the doings of the night. When he had ended, she said, How hath the king dealt with those twain, Lord Joss and Lord Brandock de Har? Gro answered, He hath them clapped up in the old banqueting hall in the Iron Tower. And his brow darkened, and he said, "'Tis pity thy lord lay thus long abed, and so came not to the council, where Corsus and Corinius, backed by thy stepsons and the sons of Corsus, egged on the king to use shamefully these lords of demon land. True is that distich which admonisheth us, nor when to speak, for many times it brings danger to give the best advice to kings. And little for my health, and little gain withal, had it been, had I then openly withstood them. Corinius is ever watchful to fling goblin in my teeth but Corund weigheth in their councils, as his hand weigheth in battle. Now as Gros spake, came the Lord Corund on the terrace, calling for still wine to cool his throat withal. Presmira poured forth to him, Thou art blamed to me for keeping thy bed, my lord, that shouldst have been devising with the king touching our enemies ten captive in this night gone by. Corund sat by his lady on the bench and drank. If that be all, madam, said he, then have I little to charge my conscience withal for naught lies readier than strike off their heads, and so bring all to a fit and happy ending. Far otherwise, said Gro, hath the king determined. He let drag before him Lord Juss and Lord Brandock de Har, and with many fleers and jibes, welcome, he saith, to Carsey. Your table shall not lack store of delicates while ye are my guests, albeit ye come unbidden. Therewith he let drag them to the old banquet hall, and he bade his smiths drive great iron staples into the wall, whereon he let hang up the demons by their wrists, spread-eagled against the wall, making both wrists and ankles fast to the staples with gyves of iron. And the king let dight the table before their feet as for a banquet, that the sight and the savour might torment them, and he called all us to his counsel thither, that we might praise his conceit and mock them anew. Said Presmira, A great king should rather be a dog that killeth clean, than a cat that patteth and sporteth with his prey. True it is, said Corran, that they were safer slain, he rose from his seat. "'Twere not amiss,' he said, "'that I had word with the king.' "'Wherefore so?' asked Presmira. "'He that sleepeth late,' said Corund, eyeing her humorously, "'sometimes hath news for her that riseth betimes to sit on the western terrace. "'And this was I come to tell thee, "'that I but now beheld eastward from our chamber window, "'riding toward Carsey out of Pixieland down the way of kings. "'La Fieries,' she said. "'Mine eyes be strong enow and clear enow,' said Corund. But thou scarce require me swear to mine own brother at three miles' distance, and as for thine, I leave thee the swearing. Who should ride down the way of kings from Pixiland? cried Presmira, but La Fieries. That, madam, let Echo answer thee, said Corund, and it sticketh in my mind that the prince my brother-in-law is one that tieth to his heart-strings the remembrance of past benefits. This, too, that none did him ever a greater benefit than just, that saved his life six winters back in Impland the Moor. Wherefore, if Lefiries be to share our revels this night, needful it is that the king command these gabblers to keep silence touching our entertainment of these lords in the old banquet hall, and in general touching the share of demonland in this fighting. Presmira said, Come, I'll go with thee. They found the king on the topmost battlements above the water-gate, with his lords about him, gazing east away toward the long hills, beyond which lay Pixieland. But when Corund began to open his mind to the king, the king said, Thou growest old, O Corund and like a good-for-nothing chapman bringest not thy wares to market ere the market be done. 
I have already ta'en order for this, and straightly charged my people that naught befell last night save a fairing of the goblins against Carsey, and their overthrow, and my chasing of them with a great slaughter into the sea. Whoso by speech or sign shall reveal to Lafayres that the demons were in it, or that these enemies of mine are thus entertained by me to their discomfort in the old banquet hall, he shall lose nothing but his life. Cohen said, It is well, O king. The king said, Captain General, what is our strength? Corinius answered, Seventy and three were slain, and the others, for the most part, hurt. I among them, that am thus one-handed for the while. I will not engage to find you, O king, fifty sound men in Carsey. My lord Coron, said the king, thine eyes pierced ever a league beyond the best among us, young or old. How many makest thou young company? Coron leaned on the parapet, and shaded his eyes with his hand, that was broad as a smoked haddock, and covered on the back with yellow hairs growing somewhat sparsely, as the hairs on the skin of a young elephant. He rideth with threescore horse, O king. One or two more I give you for good luck, but if I have a horseman fewer than sixty, never love me more. The king muttered an imprecation. It is the curse of chance bringeth him thus pat, when I have my powers abroad, and am left with too little strength to awe him if he prove irksome. One of thy sons, O Coron, shall take horse and ride south to Zorn and Permio, and muster a few score fighting men from the herdsmen and farmers with what speed he may. It is commanded. Now was the afternoon wearing to evening when the Prince Lefairies was come in with all his company, and greetings done, and the tribute safe bestowed, and the sleeping-room appointed for him and his. And now ere all gathered together in the great banquet-hall that was built by Gorais the Eleventh, when he was first made king, in the southeast corner of the palace, and it far exceeded in greatness and magnificence the old hall, where Lord Juss and Lord Brandock de Haar were held in duress. Seven equal walls it had, of dark green jasper, specked with bloody spots. In the midst of one wall was the lofty doorway, and in the walls right and left of this, and in those that enclosed the angle opposite the door, were great windows placed high, giving light to the banquet hall. In each of the seven angles of the wall, a carrier tied, cut in the likeness of a three-headed giant from ponderous blocks of black serpentine, bowed beneath the mass of a monstrous crab hewn out of the same stone. The mighty claws of those seven crabs, spreading upwards, bear up the dome of the roof, that was smooth, and covered all over with paintings of battles and hunting scenes and wrestling bouts in dark and smoky colours answerable to the gloomy grandeur of that chamber. On the walls beneath the windows gleamed weapons of war, and of the chase, and on the two blind walls were nailed up all orderly the skulls and dead bones of those champions which had wrestled aforetime with King Garice the Eleventh, or ever he appointed in an evil hour to wrestle with Goldie Blusco. Across the innermost angle facing the door was a long table and a carven bench behind it, and from the two ends of that table, set square with it, two other tables yet longer, and benches by them on the sides next to the walls stretched to within a short space of the door. Midmost of the table, to the right of the door, was a high seat of old cypress wood, great and fair, with cushions of black velvet broidered with gold, and facing it at the opposite table another high seat, smaller, and the cushions of it sewn with silver. In the space betwixt the tables, five iron braziers, massive and footed with claws like an eagle's, stood in a row, and behind the benches on either side were nine great stands for flamboys to light the hall by night, and seven behind the cross-bench, set at equal distances and even with the walls. The floor was paved with steatite, white and creamy, with veins of rich brown and black and purples and splashes of scarlet. The tables resting on great trestles were massy slabs of a dusky polished stone, powdered with sparks of gold as small as atoms. 
The women sat on the cross-bench, and midmost of them the Lady Presmira, who outwent the rest in beauty and queenliness, as Venus the lesser planets of the night. Xenambria, wife to Duke Corsus, sat on her left, and on her right Sreva, daughter to Corsus, strangely fair for such a father. On the upper bench, to the right of the door, the lords of Witchland sat above and below the king's high seat, clad in holiday attire, and they of Pixieland had place over against them on the lower bench. The high seat on the lower bench was set apart for La Fierese. Great plates and dishes of gold and silver and painted porcelain were set in order on the tables, laden with delicacies. Harps and bagpipes struck up a barbaric music, and the guests rose to their feet as the shining doors swung open and Garais the king, followed by the prince his guest, entered that hall. Like a black eagle surveying earth from some high mountain, the king passed by in his majesty. His burney was of black chain-mail, its collar, sleeves, and skirt edged with plates of dull gold set with hyacinths and black opals. His hose were black, cross-gartered with bands of seal-skin trimmed with diamonds. On his left thumb was his great signet-ring, fashioned in gold in the semblance of the worm Ouroboros that eateth his own tail. The bezel of the ring the head of the worm, made of a peach-coloured ruby of the bigness of a sparrow's egg. His cloak was woven of the skins of black cobras, stitched together with gold wire, its lining of black silk sprinkled with dust of gold. The iron crown of Witchland weighed on his brow, the claws of the crab erect like horns, and the sheen of its jewels was many-coloured like the rays of Sirius on a clear night of frost and wind at Yuletide. The Prince Lafayrese went in a mantle of black sandaline, sprinkled everywhere with spangles of gold and the tunic beneath it of rich figured silk dyed deep purple of the pasque flower. From the golden circlet on his head two wings sprung aloft exquisitely fashioned in plates of beaten copper, veneered with jewels and enamels and plated with precious metals to the semblance of the wings of the oleander hawk-moth. He was something below the common height, but stout and strong and sturdily knit, with red crisp curly hair, broad-faced and ruddy, clean-shaved with high wide-nostrilled nose, and bushy red heavy eyebrows, whence his eyes, most like his lady sister's, sea-green and fiery, shot glances like a lion's. When the king was coming to his high seat, with Corund and Corinius on his left and right, in honour of their great deeds of arms, and Lafayrese facing him in the high seat on the lower bench, the thralls made haste to set forth dishes of pickled grigs and oysters in the shell, and wilks, snails, and cockles fried in olive oil, and swimming in red and white hippocrats and the feasters delayed not to fall on these dainties, while the cup-bearer bore round a mighty ball of beaten gold filled with sparkling wine, the hue of the yellow sapphire, and furnished with six golden ladles, resting their handles in six half-moon-shaped nicks in the rim of that great ball. Each guest, when the ball was brought to him, must brim his goblet with the ladle, and drink unto the glory of Witchland and the rulers thereof. Somewhat greenly looked Corinius on the prince, and whispering Hemming, Corrin's son, in the ear, who sat next him, he said, True it is that Lafayres is the showiest of men in all that belongeth to gear and costly array. Mark with what ridiculous excess he affecteth demon-land in the great store of jewels he flaunteth, and with what an apish insolence he sitteth at the board. Yet this lobcock liveth only by our sufferance, and I see I hath not forgot to bring with him to Witchland the price of our hand withheld from twisting of his neck. Now were borne round dishes of carp, pilchards and lobsters, and thereafter story now of meats. A fat kid roasted whole and garnished with peas on a spacious silver charger, kid pasties, plates of neats, tongs and sweetbreads, sucking rabbits in jellies, hedgehogs baked in their skins, hogs haslets, carbonadoes, 
chitterlings, and dormouse pies. These and other luscious meats were borne round continually by thralls who moved silent on bare feet, and merry waxed the talk as the edge of hunger became blunted a little, and the cockles of men's hearts were warmed with wine. "'What news in which land?' asked Lafayres. "'I have heard naught newer,' said the king, "'than the slaying of Gaslark.' And the king recounted the battle in the night, setting forth as in a frank and open honesty every particular of numbers, times, and comings and goings, save that none might have guessed from his tale that any of Demonland had part or interest in that battle. Lafayres said, "'Strange it is that he should so attack you. An enemy might smell some cause behind it.' "'Our greatness,' said Corinius, looking haughtily at him, "'is a lamp whereat other moths than he have been burnt. "'I count it no strange matter at all.' "'Presmira said, "'Strange indeed, were it any but Gaslark. "'But sure with him no wild sudden fancy were too light, "'but it should chariot him like thistledown to storm heaven itself.' "'A bubble of the air, madam, "'all fine colours without and empty wind within. "'I have known other such,' said Corinius, "'still resting his gaze with studied insolence on the prince.' Presmira's eye danced. "'O oh, my lord Corinius,' said she, "'change first thine own fashion, I pray thee, "'ere thou convince gay attire of inward folly, "'lest beholding thee we misdoubt thy precept, "'or thy wisdom.' Corinius drank his cup to the drains and laughed. Somewhat reddened was his insolent face about the cheeks and shaven jowl, for surely was none in that hall more richly apparelled than he. His ample chest was cased in a jerkin of untanned buckskin plated with silver scales, and he wore a collar of gold that was rough with smaragds, and a long cloak of sky-blue silk brocade lined with cloth of silver. On his left wrist was a mighty ring of gold, and on his head a wreath of black bryony and sleeping nightshade. Gro whispered Corrond in the ear, He bibbeth it down apace, and the hour is yet early. This presageth trouble, since ever with him indiscretion treadeth hard on the heels of surliness, as he waxeth drunken. Corrond grunted assent, saying aloud, to all peaks of fame might Gaslark have climbed, but for this same rashness. Not more pitiful hath been heard to tell of than his great sending into Impland ten years ago, when, on a sudden conceit that I should lay all Impland under him and become the greatest king in all the world, he hired Zeldonius and Helteranius and Jalconius Faustus. The three most notable captains found on earth, said Lafayres. Nothing is more true, said Corrond. These he hired and brought him ships and soldiers and horses, and such a clutter of engines of war as hath not been seen these hundred years, and sent him whither? To the rich and pleasant lands of Bestria? No. To Demonland? Not a whit. To this witch-land, where with the twentieth part the power I hath now risked all and suffered death and doom? No. But to yonder hell-besmitten wilderness of upper Impland, treeless, waterless, not a soul to pay him tribute had he laid it under him, save wandering bands of savage imps, with more bugs on their bodies than pence in their purses, I warrant you. Or was he minded to be king among the dibbles of the air, ghosts and hob-thrushes that be found in that desert? Without controversy there be seventeen several sorts of dibbles on the marooner, said Corsus, very loud and sudden, so that all turned to look on him. Fiery divils, divils of the air, terrestrial devils, as you may say, and watery divils, and subterranean divils, Without controversy there be seven seen sorts, seventeen several sorts of hob-thrushes, and several sorts of divils, and if the humour took me I could name them all by rote. Wondrous solemn was the heavy face of Corsus, his eyes baggy underneath and somewhat bloodshed, his pendulous cheeks, thick blubber upper lip, and bristly grey moustachios and whiskers. He had eaten, mainly to provoke thirst, 
pickled olives, capers, salted almonds, anchovies, fumados, and pilchards fried with mustard, and now awaited the salt chine of beef to be a pillow and a resting place for new potations. The ladies in Ambria asked, Knoweth any for certain what fate befell Jalconius and Helteranius and Zeldonius and their armies? Heard I not, said Presmira, that they were led by will of the wisps to the regions Hyperborean, and there made kings. Told thee by the Madge Howlet, I fear me, sister, said Lephires, when as I fared through Impland the moor six years ago, there was many a wild tale told me hereof, but naught within credit. Now was the chine served in amid shallots on a great dish of gold borne by four serving men, so weighty was the dish and its burden. Some light there glowed in the dull eye of Corsus to see it come, and Corund rose up with brimming goblet, and the witches cried, The song of the chine, O Corund! Great as a neat stood Corund in his russet velvet kirtle, girt about with a broad belt of crocodile hide edged with gold. From his shoulders hung a cloak of wolf's skin with the hair inside, the outside tanned and diapered with purple silk. Daylight was nigh gone, and through a haze of savours rising from the feast, the flamboy shone on his bald head set about with thick grizzled curls, and on his keen grey eyes and his long and bushy beard. He cried, Give me a rouse, my lords, and if any fail to bear me out in the refrain, I'll ne'er love him more. And he sang the song of the chine in a voice like the sounding of a gong, and all they roared in the refrain till the piled dishes on the service tables rang. Bring out the old chine, the cold chine to me, and how I charge him come and see, brawn tusked, brawn well soused and fine, with a precious cup of muscadine. How shall I sing, how shall I look, in honour of the master cook? The pig shall turn round and answer me. Canst thou spare me a shoulder? A wee, a wee. The duck, goose, and capon, good fellows all three, shall dance thee an antic, so shall the turkey. But oh, the cold chine, the cold chine for me. How shall I sing? How shall I look, in honour of the master cook? With brewis I'll noint thee from head to thiel, shall make thee run nimbler than the new-oiled wheel. With pie-crust we'll make thee the eighth wise man to be, but oh, the old chine, the cold chine for me. How shall I sing, how shall I look, in honour of the master cook? When the chine was carved and the cups replenished, the king issued command, saying, Call hither my dwarf, and let him act his antic gestures before us. Therewith came the dwarf into the hall, mopping and mowing, clad in a sleeveless jerkin of striped yellow and red macado, and his long and nerveless tail dragged on the floor behind him. Somewhat fulsome is this dwarf, said Lephires. Speak within door, prince, said Corinius, knowst not his quality. I hath been envoy extraordinary from King Garais the Eleventh, of memory ever glorious, unto Lord Jussingaling and the lords of Demonland, and t'was the greatest courtesy we could study to do them, to send em this luby for our ambassador. The dwarf practised before them to the great content of the lords of Witchland and their guests, save for his jerping upon Corinius and the prince, calling them two peacocks, so like in their bright plumage that none might tell either from other, which somewhat galled them both. And now was the king's heart waxen glad with wine, and he pledged Gro, saying, Be merry, Gro, and doubt not that I will fulfil my word I spake unto thee, and make thee king in Zagesaculo. Lord, I am yours for ever, answered Gro. But methinks I am little fitted to be a king. Methinks I was ever a better steward of other men's fortunes than of mine own. Whereat the Duke Corsus, that was sprawled on the table well nigh asleep, cried out in a great voice but husky withal, A brace of divils broil me if thou sayest not sooth. If thine own fortunes come off but bluely, care not a rush. Give me some wine, a full weeping goblet. Ha! Ha! 
Whippy away! Ha! Ha! Witch land! When wear you the crown of demon land, O king? How now, Corsus, said the king, art thou drunk? But Lephyres said, Ye swear peace with the demons in the Foliot Isles, and by mighty oaths are you bound to put by forever your claims and lordship over demon land. I hoped your quarrels were ended. Why, so they are, said the king. Corsus chuckled weakly. Ye say well, very well, O king, very well, Lephyres. Our quarrels are ended. No room for more. For, look you, demon land is a ripe fruit, ready to drop me thus in our mouth. Leaning back, he gaped his mouth wide open, suspending by one leg above it, and Hortaland bursted with its own dripping. The bird slipped through his fingers, and fell against his cheek, and so on to his bosom, and so on the floor, and his brazen burney and the sleeves of his pale green kirtle were splashed with gravy. Whereat Corinius let fly a great peal of laughter. But Lephyres flushed with anger, and said, scowling, Drunkenness, my lord, is a jest for thralls to laugh at. Then sit thou mum, prince, said Corinius, lest thy quality be called in question. For my part I laugh at my thoughts, and they be very choice. But Corsus wiped his face and fell a-singing. Whene'er I bid the wine down, asleep drop all my cares. A fig for fret, a fig for sweat, a fig care I for cares. Sith death must come, though I say nay, why grieve my life's days with affairs? Come bib we then the wine down, of Bacchus fair to see, for all where while we bibbing be, asleep drop all our cares. With that, Corsus sank heavily forward again on the table, and the dwarf, whose japes all else in that company had taken well, even when themselves were the mark thereof, leapt up and down, crying, Here a wonder! This pudding singeth! When with two platters thralls ye have served it to the board without a dish! One were too little to contain so vast a deal of bullock's blood and lard. Swift and carve it ere the vapours burst the skin. "'I will carve thee, filth,' said Corsus, lurching to his feet, and catching the dwarf by the wrist with one hand, he gave him a great box on the ear with the other. The dwarf squealed and bit Corsus's thumb to the bone, so that he loosed his hold, and the dwarf fled from the hall, while the company laughed pleasantly. "'So flieth folly before wisdom which is in wine,' said the king. "'The night is young.' Bring me botargos, and caviar, and toast. Drink, prince, the red Thramnian wine, that is thick like honey, wooeth the soul to divine philosophy. How vain a thing is ambition! This was Gaslark's bane, whose enterprises of such pitch a moment have ended thus, in a kind of nothing. Well, what thinkest thou, Gro, thou which art a philosopher? Alas, poor Gaslark, said Gro, had all grown to his mind, and had he gainst all expectation gotten us overthrown. Even so had he been no nearer to his heart's desire than when he first set forth. For he had of old in Zadja's Aculo, eating and drinking and gardens, and treasure and musicians, and a fair wife, all soft ease and contentment all his days. And at the last, howsoe'er we shape our course, cometh the poppy that abideth all of us by the harbour of oblivion hard to cleanse, dry withered leaves of laurel or of cypress tree, and a little dust. Nought else remaineth. With a sad brow, I say it, said the king, I hold him wise that resteth happy, even as the red foliot, and tempteth not the gods by overmounting ambition to his dejection. Lephyres had thrown himself back in his high seat, with his elbows resting on its lofty arms, and his hands dangling idly on either side. With head held a high and incredulous smile, he hearkened to the words of Garais the king. Gro said in Coron's ear, The king hath found strange kindness in the cup. I think thou and I be clean out of fashion, answered Corund, whispering, that we be not yet drunken. 
the cause whereof is that thou drinkest within measure, which is good. And me, this amethyst at my belt keepeth sober, where I never saw surfeit swelled with wine. Lefiery said, You are pleased to jest, O king. For my part, I had as lief have this musk million on my shoulders, as a head so blockish as to want ambition. If thou wert not our princely guest, said Corinius, I had called that spoke in the right fashion of a little man. Which land affecteth not such vaunts, but can afford to speak as our lord the king in proud humility? Turkey cocks do strut and gobble, not so the eagle, who holdeth the world at his discretion. Pity on thee, cried the prince, if this cheap victory turn thee so giddy. Goblins! Corinius scowled. Corsus chuckled, saying to himself, but loud enough for all to hear, Goblins, quotha! They were small game, had they been all. Ay, there it is, had they been all. The king's brow was like a foul black cloud. The women held their breath. But Corsus, blandly insensible of these gathering thunders, beat time on the table with his cup, drowsily chanting to a most mournful air, When birds in water deep do lie, and fishes in the air do fly, when water burns, and fire doth freeze, and oysters grow as fruits on trees. A resounding heckup brought him to a full close. The talk had died down. The lords of Witchland, ill at ease, studying to wear their faces to the bent of the king's looks. But Presmira spake, and the music of her voice came like a refreshing shower. This song of my lord Corsus, she said, made me hopeful for an answer to a question in philosophy. But Bacchus, you see, hath turned his soul into Elysium for a season, and I fear me nor truth nor wisdom cometh from his mouth to-night. And this was my question, whether it be true that all animals of the land are in their kind in the sea. My lord Corinius, or thou, my princely brother, can you resolve me? Why, so it is received, madam, said Lefiris. An inquiry will show thee many pretty instances, as the sea-frog, the sea-fox, the sea-dog, the sea-horse, the sea-lion, the sea-bear and I have known the barbarous people of Esamokia eat of a conserve of sea-mice, mashed and bred in a mortar with the flesh of that beast named Bosmarinus, seasoned with salt and garlic. Foe! Speak to me somewhat quickly, cried the Lady Sriva, ere in imagination I taste such nasty meat. Prithee, yonder gold peaches and raisins of the sun as an antidote. Lord Grow will instruct thee better than I, said Lefiris. For my part, albeit I think nobly of philosophy, yet have I little leisure to study it. Oft have I hunted the badger, yet never answered that question of the doctor's, whether he hath the legs of one side shorter than of the other. Neither know I, for all the lampreys I have eat, how many eyes the lamprey hath, whether it be nine or two. Presmira smiled. O oh, my brother, thou art too too smooed, I fear me, in the dust of action, and the field, to be at accord with these nice searchings. But be there birds under the sea, my lord Gro? Gro made answer, In rivers, certainly though it be but birds of the air sojourning for a season, as I myself have found them in outer impland, asleep in winter-time at the bottom of lakes and rivers, two together, mouth to mouth, wing to wing. But in the spring they revive again, and by and by the woods are full of their singing. And for the sea there be true sea-cuckows, sea-thrushes, and sea-sparrows, and many more. It is passing strange, said Zenambria. Corsus sang. When sorcerers do leave their charm, When spiders do the fly no harm. Presmira turned to Coron, saying, Was there not a merry dispute betwixt you, my lord, Concerning the toad and the spider, Thou maintaining that they do poisonously destroy one another, And my lord grow, that he would show thee to the contrary? T'was even so, lady, said Coron, And it is yet in controversy. 
courses sang and when the blackbird leaves to sing and likewise serpents for to sting then you may say unjustly too the old world now is turned anew and so sank back into bloated silence my lord the king cried presmira i beseech you give order for the ending of this difference between two of your council ere it waxed to dangerous heat let them be given a toad or king and spiders without delay that they may make experiment before this goodly company therewith all fell a laughing and the king commanded a thrall who shortly brought fat spiders to the number of seven and a crystal wine cup and enclosed with them beneath the cup a toad and set all before the king and all beheld them eagerly i will wager two firkins of pale permian wine to a bunch of radishes said corund that victory shall be given unto the spiders behold how without resistance they do sit upon his head and pass all over his body Grow said done thou wilt lose the wager corund said the king this toad taketh no hurt from the spiders but sitteth quiet out of policy tempting them to security that upon advantage he may swallow them down while they watched fruits were borne in queen apples almonds pomegranates and pistic nuts and fresh bowls and jars of wine and among them a crystal flagon of the peach-coloured wine of crothering vintaged many summers ago in the vineyards that stretched southward toward the sea from below the castle of lord brandock de har Carinius drank deep and cried tis a royal drink this wine of crothering folk say it will be good cheap this summer whereat lafayeries shot a glance at him and the king marking it said in Carinius's ear wilt thou be prudent let not thy pride flatter thee to think aught shall avail thee any more than my vilest thrall if by thy doing this prince smell out my secrets by then was the hour waxing late and the women took their leave lighted to the doors in great state by thralls with flamboys in a while when they were gone a plague of all spiders cried corund thy toad hath swallowed one already two more said gro thy theoric crumbleth apace o corund he hath two at a gulp and but four remain the lord Carinius, whose countenance was now aflame with furious drinking, held high his cup, and catching the prince's eye, Mark well, the fireese, he cried, a sign and a prophecy. First one, next two at a mouthful, and early after that, as I think, the four that remain. Art not afeard, lest thou be found a spider when the brunt shall come. Hast thou drunk thyself horn mad, Carinius, said the king under his breath, his voice shaken with anger. He is as witty a marmalade-eater as ever I conversed with, said Lafayres, but I cannot tell what the dickens he means. That, answered Carinius, which should make thy smirking face turn serious, I mean our ancient enemies, the haskardly mongrels of demonland. First gulp Goldry, taken heaven knows whither by the king's sending in a deadly scud of wind. The devil damn thee, cried the king, what drunken brabble is this? But the prince Lafayres waxed red as blood, saying, this it is then that lieth behind this hudder mudder and ye go to war with demon land think not to have my help therein we shall not sleep the worse for that said Carinius. our mouth is big enough for such a morsel of march pain as thou if thou turn irksome thy mouth is big enough to blab the secretest intelligence as we now most laughably approve said lafayres were i the king i would draw lobster's whiskers on thy skin for a tipsy and a prattling popinjay an insult cried the lord Carinius, leaping up I would not take an insult from the gods in heaven. Reach me a sword, boy. I will make bestry and cutworks in his guts. Peace on your lives, said the king in a great voice, while Corund went to Carinius and grow to the prince to quiet them. Carinius is wounded in the wrist and cannot fight, and belike his brain is fevered by the wound. 
"'Heal him, then, of this carving the goblins gave him, "'and I will carve him like a capon,' said the prince. "'Goblins?' said Corinius fiercely. "'No, vile fellow, the best swordsman in the world gave me this wound. "'Had it been thou that stood before me, "'I had cut thee into stakes that art caponed already.' "'But the king stood up in his majesty, saying, "'Silence on your lives!' "'And the king's eyes glittered with wrath. "'And he said, For thee, Corinius, not thy hot youth and rebellious blood, nor yet the wine thou hast swilled into that greedy belly of thine, shall mitigate the rigour of my displeasure. Thy punishment I reserve unto to-morrow. And thou, Lafires, look thou bear thyself more humbly in my halls. Overpert was the message brought me by thine herald at thy coming hither this morning, and too much it smacked of a greeting from an equal to an equal, calling thy tribute a gift, though it and thou and all thy principality are mine by right to deal with as seems me good. Yet did I bear with thee, unwisely as I think, since thy pertness nourished by my forbearance springeth up yet rancour at my table, and thou insultest and brawlest in my halls. Be advised, lest my wrath forge thunderbolts against thee. The prince Lefiris answered, and said, Keep frowns and threats for thine offending thralls, O king, since me they affright not, and I laugh them to scorn. Nor am I careful to answer thine injurious words, since well thou knowest my old friendship unto thine house, O king, and unto Witchland and by what bands of marriage I am bound in love to the Lord Corrand, to whom I gave my lady sister. If it suit not my stomach to proclaim like a servile minister thy suzerainty, yet needest thou not to carpet this, since thy tribute is paid thee, high and in over-measure. But unto demon-land am I bound, as all the world knoweth, and sooner shalt thou prevail upon the lamps of heaven to come down and fight for thee against the demons than upon me. And unto Corinneth, that so boasteth, I say that demon-land hath ever been too hard for you witches. Goldry Blusco and Brandok de Haar have shown you this. This is my counsel unto thee, O king, to make peace with Demonland. My reasons, first, that thou hast no just cause of quarrel with them, next, and this should swear thee more, that if thou persist in fighting against them, it will be the ruin of thee and of all Witchland. The king bit his fingers with signs of wonderful anger, and for a minute's time no sound was in that hall. Only Corrin spake privately to the king, saying, Lord, or for all sakes swallow your royal rage. You may whip him when my son Hackman returneth, but till then he outnumbers us, and your own party so overwhelmed with wine that, trust me, I would not adventure the price of a turnip on our chances if it come to fighting. Troubled at heart was Corrand, for well he knew how dear beyond account his lady wife held the keeping of the peace betwixt Lefiris and the witches. In this moment Corsus, somewhat roused in an evil hour out of lethargy by the loud talk and movement, began to sing, when all the prisoners hereabout have jostled all their prisoners out, because indeed they have no cause to keep em in by common laws. Wherein Corinius, in whom wine and quarrelling and the king's rebukes had lighted a fire of reckless and outrageous malice, before which all counsels of prudence or policy were dissipated like wax in a furnace, shouted loudly, Wilt see our prisoners, prince, in the old banquet hall to prove thyself an ass? What prisoners? cried the prince, springing to his feet. Hell's furies! I am weary of these dark equivocations, and will know the truth. Wilt thou rage so beastly, said the king? The man is drunk. No more wild words. Thou canst not daff me so. I will know the truth, said Lefiris. So thou shalt, said Corinius. This it is, that we witches be better men than thou, and thy hen-hearted pixies, and better men than the accursed demons. No need to hide it further. Two of that breed we have laid by the heels, and nailed them up on the wall of the old banquet-hall as farmers nail up weasels and polecats on a barn door, and there shall they bide till they be dead, Juss and Brandock de Haar, 
Oh, most villainous lie, said the king, I'll have thee hewn in pieces. But Corinius said, I nurse your honour, O king. We must no longer skulk before these pixies. Thou diest for it, said the king, and it is a lie. Now was dead silence for a space. At last the prince sat down slowly. His face was white and drawn, and he spake unto the king, slowly and in a quiet voice, O king, that I was somewhat hot with you, forgive me. And if I have omitted any form of allegiance due to you, think rather that in my blood it is to chafe at such ceremonies, than that I had any lack of friendship unto you, or ever dreamed of questioning your overlordship. Aught that you shall require of me, and that lieth with mine honour, aught of ceremony or fealty, will I with joy perform. And, save against demonland, is my sword ready against your enemies. But here, O king, tottereth a tower ready to fall athwart our friendship, and pash it in pieces. It is known to you, O king, and to all the lords of Witchland, that my bones were whitening these six years in Impland the Moor, if Lord Juss had not saved me from the barbarous imps that followed Fax Faz, who besieged me four months with my small following shut up in Leda Nanguna. My friendship shall you have, O king, if you yield me up my friends. But the king said, I have not thy friends. Show me then the old banquet hall, said the prince. The king said, I will show it thee anon. I will see it now, said the prince, and he rose from his seat. I will dissemble with thee no longer, said the king. I do love thee well, but when thou askest me to yield up to thee, Juss and Brandock de Har, thou askest a thing all Pixieland and thy dear's heart's blood were unable to purchase from me. These be my worst enemies. Thou knowest not at what cost of toil and danger I have at last laid hand on them. And now let not thy hopes make thee an unbeliever, when I swear to thee that Juss and Brandock de Har shall rot and die in prison and for all his gentle speeches, and offers of wealth and rich advantage, and upholding in peace and war, might not Lafayres shake the king. And the king said, Forbear, Lafayres, or thou wilt vex me. They must rot. So when the prince Lafayres saw that he might not move the king by soft words, he took up his fair crystal goblet, egg-shaped with three claws of gold to stand withal, welded to a collar of gold about its middle, bossed with topazes, and hurled it at Garais the king so that the goblet smote him on the forehead, and the crystal was brassed asunder with the force of the blow, and the king's forehead laid open, and the king struck senseless. Therewith was huge uproar in the banquet hall. Nor would Corin that any should have speedier hand therein than he, but catching up his two-edged sword and crying, Look to the king, Grow! Here's distressful revels! He leaped upon the table, and his sons likewise, and Galandus, and the other witches seized their weapons, and in like manner did Lafayeries and his men, and there was battle in the great hall in Carsey. Corinius, whose left hand only might as now wield weapon, even so sprang forth in most gallant wise, calling upon the prince with many vile words to abide his onset. But the fumes of unbridled potations, that being flown to his brain and made him frantic mad, wrought in his legs more foggily, dulling their wonted nimbleness, and his foot sliding in a puddle of spilt wine he fell backwards a grievous fall, striking his head against the polished table. And Corsus, that was now well-nigh speechless and quite stupefied with drink, so that a baby might tell as well as he what meant this hubbub, real cup in hand, shouting, Drunkenness is better for the body than physic! Drink always, and you shall never die! So shouting, he was smitten square in the mouth by a breast of veal, flung at him by Eleron of Pixieland, the captain of the prince's bodyguard, and so fell like a hog athwart Corinius, and there lay without sense or motion. Then were the tables overset, and wounds given and taken, and swiftly ran the tide of vantage against the witches. 
for albeit the pixies were none such great soldiers as they of Witchland, yet this served them mightily, that they were well nigh sober, and their foes as so many casks filled with wine, staggering and raving for the most part from their long tippling and quaffing. Nor did Corrin's amethyst avail him thoroughly, but the wine clogged his veins, so that he waxed scant of breath, and his strokes lighter and slower than they were wont. Now for the love he bare his sister Presmira, and for his old kindness' sake for Witchland, the prince charged his men to fight only for the overpowering of the witches, slaying none, if so it might be, and on their lives to look to it that the Lord Corran took no hurt. And when they had fairly gotten the mastery, Lafires made certain of his folk take jars of wine, and therewith souse Corund and his men most lustily in the face, while others held them at weapons point, until by the power of the wine both within and without they were well brought under. And they barricaded the great doorway of the hall with the benches and table-tops, and heavy oaken trestles, and Lefairies charged Eleron hold the door with the most of his following, and set guards without each window, that none might come forth from the hall. But the prince himself took flamboys and went six in company to the old banquet-hall, overpowered the guard, broke open the doors, and so stood before Lord Juss and Lord Brandock de Haar, that hung shackled to the wall side by side. Something dazzled they were in the sudden torchlight, but Lord Brandock de Haar spake and hailed the prince, and his mocking, haughty, lazy accents were scarcely touched with hollowness, for all his hunger-starving, and long-watching, and the cark and care of his affliction. "'Lafires,' he said, "'day ne'er broke up till now. And methought ye were yonder false fitchews fostered in filth and fen, the spawn of Witchland, returned again to fleer and flout at us.' Lafires told them how things had gone, and he said, "'Occasion gallopeth apace. Upon this bargain do I loose you, that ye come incontinently with me out of Corsi, and seek no revenge to-night upon the witches.' Just said ye to this, and Brandock de Haar laughed, saying, Prince, I so love thee, I could refuse thee nothing, were it shave half my head, and go in fustian till harvest-time, sleep in my clothes, and discourse pious nothing seven hours a day with my lady's lapdog. This night we be utterly thine, an instant only bear with us. This fair shows too good to rest untasted after so much looking on. It were discourteous, too, to leave it so. Therewith, their chains being now stricken off, he eat a great slice of turkey, and three quails boned and served in jelly and just a dozen plover's eggs, and a cold partridge. Lord Brandock de Haar said, I prithee break the eggshells, just when the meat is out, lest some sorcerer should prick or write thy name thereon, and so mischief thy person. And pouring out a stoop of wine, he quaffed it off, and filling it again, Perdition catch me, if it be not mine own wine of crothering. So any a carefuller host than King Gorice. And he pledged Lord Juss in the second cup, saying, I will drink with thee next in Carsey, when the King of Witchland and all the lords thereof are slain. Thereafter they took their weapons that lay by on the table, set there to distress their souls, and with little expectation they should so take them up again. And glad at heart, albeit somewhat stiff of limb, they went forth with Lafayeries from that banquet-hall. When they were coming to the courtyard, just spake and said, Herein might honour hold us back even hadst thou made no bargain with us, Lafayeries, for great shame it were to us, and we fell upon the lords of Witchland when they were drunk, and unable to meet us in equal battle. But let us ere we be gone from Carsey, ransack this hold for my kinsman Goldry Blusco, since for his sake only, and in hope to find him here, we fared on this journey. So you touch no other thing but only Goldry, if ye shall find him, I am content, said the prince. So when they had found keys, they ransacked all Carsey, even to the dread chamber where the king had conjured, and the vaults and cellars below the river. But it availed not. And as they stood in the courtyard in the torchlight, there came forth on a balcony the Lady Presmira in her nightgown, disturbed by this ransacking. Ethereal as a cloud she seemed, pavilioned in the balmy night, as a cloud touched by the exhalations of the unrisen moon. 
"'What transformation is this?' said she. "'Demons loose in the court.' "'Content thee, dear heart,' said the prince. "'Thy man is safe, and all else beside, as I think. "'Said that the king hath a broken head, the which I lament, "'and will without question soon be healed. "'They lie all in the banquet hall to-night, "'being too sleepy sodden with the feast to take their chambers.' "'Presmira cried, My fears are fallen upon me. "'Art thou broken with witchland?' "'That may I not forejudge,' he answered. "'Tell them to-morrow that nought I did in hatred, "'and nought but what I was by circumstance enforced to. "'For I am not such a coward, nor so great a villain, "'as leave my friends caged up, "'while strength is left me to work for their setting free.' "'You must straightway forth from Carsey,' said Presmira, "'and that of the instant. "'My steps on Hackmon, which was sent to gather strength to all thee, if need were, "'rideth by now from the south with a great company. "'Thy horses are fresh.' and ye may well outdistance the king's men if they ride after you. If thou wilt not yet raise up a river of blood betwixt us, be gone. Why, fare thee well, then, sister. And doubt it not, these rifts between me and Witchland shall soon be patched up and forgot. So spake the prince with a merry voice, yet grieved at heart. For well he weened the king should never pardon him that blow, nor his robbing him of his prayer. But she said sadly, Farewell, my brother, and my heart tells me I shall never see thee more. When thou tookst these from prison, thou didst dig up two mandrakes shall bring sorrow and death to thee and to me and to all witchland. The prince was silent. But Lord just bowed to Presmira, saying, Madam, these things be on the knees of fate. But imagine not that while life and breath be in us, we shall leave to uphold the prince thy brother. His foes be our foes for this night's sake. Thou swearest it, she said. He answered, Madam, I swear it unto thee and unto him. The Lady Presmira withdrew sadly to her chamber, and in short space she heard their horse-hoofs on the bridge, and looking forth beheld where they galloped on the way of kings, dim in the coppery light of a waning moon rising over Pixieland. So sate she by the window of Corrin's lofty bedchamber, gazing through the night, long after her brother and the lords of Demonland and her brother's men were ridden beyond her seeing, long after their last hoof-feet had ceased to echo on the road. In a while fresh horse-hoofs sounded from the south and a noise as of many riding in company, and she knew it was young Hackmon back from Permio. End of chapter 7